from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. A Baha'i Perspective is a radio program of biographical interviews of people who have either chosen the Baha'i faith as a way of life or of a relationship with the Baha'i faith. If you want information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you're welcome to visit the website www.baha'i.org, that's B-A-H-A-I dot O-R-G, or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. Today, I'm playing a telephone interview with Derek Koshat. Derek grew up in Lancashire, England. At about the age of 15, Derek started looking at other religions such as Buddhism, Zoroastrianism, and Islam. He also ran into the Baha'i faith at that time, but didn't seriously look into it until he returned from Cambridge, where he had studied economics. Derek tells a funny story about his introduction to the Baha'i faith. I started the interview by asking Derek where he grew up, and what was it like growing up there. I was born in uh, in the United Kingdom in England, in the north of England in uh, in Lancashire, in an area that's known as the Cone Valley. The area is quite famous because there is almost a mountain there called Pendle Hill, which is where uh, George Fox had his visions, from which he founded the Society of Friends. It's also an area that was quite famous in the UK, where the Chartres movement started in that area, Fabians and the socialism, and the cooperative movement. So it was always an area, certainly from the 18th, 19th, into the 20th century, where there was, there was political and religious turmoil. So it was in that sort of area with that sort of, those sort of connotations I grew up. I grew up comfortably. My parents were reasonably well-offs. I never really had to want for anything. My father had his own business. Life sort of proceeded on. I can't say I had a difficult childhood because I didn't. I had a really quite delightful childhood. And then when uh, when we went into our teens, I went to the local uh, grammar school, which was founded in 1559, so there was a lot of traditions there. And then, you know, I eventually graduated and went on to Cambridge and uh, and read economics. That was the sort of basis of, of that side. The area where I come from... The cotton industry really was very dominant there, and mining. It was very famous. There was quite a damp area in the... There's a town called Burnley, which is very close to where my family home is. So uh, you grew up with that sort of industrial sort of background. So the Industrial Revolution started close to this, and the mining and everything else. Although the fields originally were very beautiful, then uh, was really quite tainted. And, of course, Tolkien, that's where he commenced his writing his books about that part of the world. I don't know if that your question. Yeah, you did. In fact, I actually find it quite fascinating that you said that the founder of the Quaker movement... Yes, George uh, Fox. ...had visions. And I don't know if you know anything about it that you could enlighten us on in that well, area. Well, he basically saw... I don't have the books here in front of me, but he had an understanding that it was a time for... A, a different understanding of religion. At that time in the UK, it was the Anglican Church. It had fallen on from Catholicism, so it was a, 
church that was dominated by dogma and superstition and really gave no opening for ordinary people to have a, a direct belief in God. So I think you know the first Quaker meeting house was actually established just above in a place called Briarfield, which is just above from where my family home is. There was that understanding that that nonconformist, in other words, to go away from the established religion of the churches. So I would say all of those things were there in the air. So you would meet people who had that sort of understanding that, you know, you, you didn't belong to this the Anglican Church because that was part of the establishment. So the, the Methodists and the Baptists uh, were very strong in uh, in that part of the world. Uh, the Quakers, of course, are quite different, the Society of Friends in the U.K. to what they are in the United States. They have the silent meeting rooms where if the Spirit of God moves you, you stand up to speak, otherwise you stay silent. So that sense of quietness and, of course, pacifism was very strong within the Quaker movement. So that was all there. In, in, in the United States, they developed more of an organized church with a pastor and that thing, but the tradition in the UK was to go not to have that at all. So I would say that was perhaps an example uh, to people. Therefore, you saw in the nonconformist churches the great lay ministers' tradition. In other words, they weren't ordained ministers, they were lay preachers, and uh, they were part of the sort of religious establishment or hierarchy. So that, that was probably for me was a, was a healthy situation. And what was your religious upbringing? Well, funny enough, I didn't really have much of a religious upbringing. My mother insisted that I went to, went to Sorrel the Baptist Church, and uh, which I did. You know, my father never went to uh, a church whatsoever. I've discovered later why that was. The fact was that we, they were not sort of churchgoers from that point of view. But I went to the usual thing. I went to Sunday class and that type of thing, which most kids my age, uh, you did. But nothing else other than that. I, I can't say we were exceptionally religious from that point of view. What caused you to study economics at Cambridge? I actually wanted to do history, but everybody told me I couldn't make any money if I studied <laughs> history, so I did economics because <laughs> everybody said, well, you, you'll be able to make some money if you do that. Which, of course, meant that I could do you know, economic history and that type of thing. Mm -hmm. so I had a, a love for figures in addition, so... It was a sort of natural thing for me to do, I think. What was life at Cambridge like? It was quite delightful. It's a wonderful university, great library, marvelous social life, and so uh, it was a very enjoyable three years. That's a short stint. Well, they make you work harder, perhaps, in the <laughs> States. You, you're not allowed time off. You, uh, you, you get on with it. So. so it's typical to get your bachelor's in three years? Uh, no, I wouldn't say particularly. Of course, if you go, if you're up at Oxford or Cambridge, it becomes an MA after a year. You, I think, I think I paid ten pounds and I got an MA. So. <laughs> so, so what did you do after Cambridge? For about a year, I really didn't do much. I came back home, and which is in fact when I came across the Baha'i Faith. There is actually a religious thread that perhaps I should have mentioned before I went off to university. A dear friend of mine's father, who had been a sort of verger in the church, and had started investigating other religions. I'd actually started to look into other religions from about the age of 15. 
this friend of mine, Michael, came to me and he said his father was looking very seriously into this rather strange religion he'd never heard of. And I said, what is it? And he said it was the Baha'i faith. He said, have you heard of it? And I hadn't. He, he asked me, what did I recommend? And I said, well, maybe you should get some books on it to read. And uh, he never did. And uh, well, you know, as I went off away from the town, and apparently he got reading later. But while I was away, I started to look into Buddhism and, uh, and to a certain extent, strange enough, the Zoroastrian religion and Islam. But I couldn't find any which really suited me. Though I had a feeling that there was something spiritual there uh, that I should believe, and I couldn't find anything which really sort of came close to me. So when I came back from Cambridge, I discovered Michael was, was and just about to become a Baha'i. So that was when I sort of looked into the faith and became a Baha'i myself. So there was that religious trend. I think probably from about the age of 15, I started to read into other religions. And, and, and part of it was when I was about 12 years old, at the grammar school, the brother, uh, who was, he was from Pakistan, he was the brother of uh, three brothers, and he was the youngest one, and they were very famous cricketers. All three of them became famous cricketers. So the eldest brother was there and was playing a, for a local professional team sort of in the summer, whereas in the winter he was back playing internationally for, for Pakistan. Because apparently at the school they felt that I was I was the one with the least prejudice. They sort of sat him next to me, and we actually ended up talking about Islam. And that was my first encounter to understand that Allah meant God in Arabic, and therefore that was the sort of connection. And it was actually a real eye-opener for me. So from that time on, I started to look into religions. But I would say quite energetically from the age of 15, I was looking for something that would be relevant to believe in. For myself. Mm-hmm. So in 1963, then I came across the faith in terms of what the teachings were, and, and I ended up embracing it. Now, it's interesting that your parents were sort of sending you to a Baptist Sunday school. The Baptist, is that an American Christian denomination? The Southern Baptists are and the Northern Baptists, but they have different groupings. It, and in fact, you have a primitive Baptist, I think, over here as well. Mm-hmm. But no, no, the Baptists in England, they don't, they're not a sort of American import. They're their own thing, just like the Methodists are English, you know, from the, uh, the Wesley brothers. I mean, you do have some which are American-grown. Uh, obviously, the, the most dominant one would be the uh, Latter-day Saints, although a lot of Christian uh, denominations don't see them as Christian, but uh, that's obviously a theological debate. I would say the only one that you have that's truly indigenous to America is in the Christian field will be those. I mean, mm-hmm. the others all have European connections, really. And the other question I had was, so you were going to the Baptist Sunday School? Yes, as I was growing up. Right. And uh, were you still going to the Baptist Church at the time that around 12 or 15 you were starting to... No, no. But after 12, funny enough, I think really the encounter with Islam made me really rethink what is religion. Mm-hmm. Because when I asked the, the various churches, I think I left that Baptist church and went to a Methodist church, but I sort of asked them all the embarrassing question, well, what about the Muslims? And, you know, those sort of, I think, sort of white faces, like, you know, you've been talking to a Muslim. Whereas nowadays in the UK, you know, there are millions. In those days, certainly up in the north of England, 
if there was any, they would they would be very hard to find. So, right. you know, nobody knew, and so it was the ignorance aspect, I think, which made me say, uh, "There's something not quite right mm-hmm. with this." So, what was it about the Baha'i faith that attracted you to it? Well, funny enough, it was the, actually the scriptures more than anything else. The, the actual story is rather amusing because this friend of mine, Michael, he uh, Michael Cleesby, he he asked me to go to a party, and of course I was about 20, and so going to a party sounded a good idea. And I went to what was probably the most boring party I've ever been to since the, before then or since. They were playing terrible music, and I just decided after about half an hour or so I would leave, or maybe an hour. And there was one rather attractive girl there, and so I thought, well, at least I can amuse myself by talking to her. So <laughs> I, I, I sort of assumed she was a behind, and so I said to her, uh, you know, are you a Baha'i? And she was very curt, and she said yes. And the conversation was really a, a classic example of how not to make people to be favorably impressed with your religion, because I said, oh, so how long have you been a Baha'i? And she said, all my life. And, and so it sort of went on this very sort of negative, cutting reply. And so I said, so uh, which scriptures does your religion follow? And she said, what do you mean? And I said, well, you know, do you follow the Bible or do you follow the Quran? So she sort of blasted me and said, we have our own scriptures, you know. And, and I said, oh, I was still trying to be pleasant because she was quite attractive. <laughs> and so I said, I said, well, have you never read them? And I said, well, no, I've, you know, never read them. So she said, well, you should do. And so I said, well, could I read some? And so in a very begrudging manner, she pulled out from the bookshelf a, a copy of the hidden words and she said here here's one of the books Derek for our listeners maybe you could tell us you know a little background of what the hidden words is sure I'll, I'll be happy to do that okay. the, the hidden words is actually the first major work of Baha'u'llah it was revealed uh, in Baghdad uh, it actually fulfilled an Islamic prophecy the daughter of the Prophet Muhammad uh, after her father's coming blessings of peace, after her, her father's passing, her husband and the cousin uh, of Muhammad, Imam Ali, revealed this book for her. And it was known as the Book of Fatima. And so uh, the prophecy was that when the promised one would come, that uh, this book that was lost upon the passing of Fatima, who passed on to the next world about six months after the death of her father, and so what Baha'u'llah said was that this book contains the essence of all religion, and that is what the book of Fatima was. Well, the book was revealed in, in two, script, in two uh, languages, in Persian and in Arabic. The first section is in Arabic. It, of course, was translated in the 1920s into English. It contains these marvelous gems of wisdom. I think the first one goes, O Son of Spirit, possess a pure, kindly, and radiant heart, that thou may be a sovereignty ancient, imperishable, and everlasting, which is really the essence of all religion, because that's really what all religions teach. Well, the one that I read, I sort of opened the book, was number 29, the Persian, which starts off, O son of bounty, out of the waste of nothingness, with the clay of my command, I made thee to appear. And it goes on to explain what God has done for us. He's, you know, destined eyes to watch over us and hearts to love us. And and I, I read this, and in those days, I used to have total recall, and this girl then, I barely finished reading it, and she just snatches the book out of my hand. And I said, but I was reading it. She said, well, fine, 
And I said, well, can I borrow it? And she said, no. And so, <laughs> and so anyway, so as you can imagine, you know, the sort of... So it's, a very, to, it's a very interesting approach to getting somebody intrigued about the bar yeah. faith. So it sort of went down from that. And I said to, after we left the party, and I was quite, you know, surprised because most people... <laughs> say I have a fair amount of charm, so I was quite surprised that, that my charm had gone nowhere at all. And so I, I said to Michael, I said, are all Baha'i women like that? And he said, no, she's normally very nice. I said, well, she wasn't particularly nice. So anyway, what I found, found the next morning, sort of blazing in my brain when I woke up before my eyes, was the actual same verse. And so after two or three days of that occurring, I decided that I really should look into the religion more. And I read in the course of about three weeks about seven books on the faith, including more scripture. And I managed without this girl knowing to get myself a copy of the Hidden Words and I read through all of it. And uh, it really is a sort of foundation, I would say it's a foundation document of the Baha'i faith. If you read it, you find in it themes which Baha'u'llah later expanded into major volumes. I know Baha'i often said there's, you know, Baha'u'llah revealed a hundred volumes. But it's believed it's like something like two million verses. And to give you an idea uh, what that relates to, the Quran has 6,360 verses. And until the coming of the Bab and Baha'u'llah, the Baha'i faith has twin founders, twin prophets that uh, brought the religion. Until the coming of the Bab and Baha'u'llah, that was the largest repository of direct revelation from God. The New Testament, as it termed, the Gospels, which in the, the Synoptic and John, St. John's, you probably find less than a thousand verses. I'm not saying this is a matter of uh, we're better than others or anything. I think this just shows the wealth of the revelation of the times. By the time I'd read through the hidden words and I had read more of, the, uh, of what we would say as Baha'is is the actual word of God. For example, if you read the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount, which is really the in many respects, the high point of, of the revelation of Jesus Christ, uh, I think that gives you an, an idea of the sort of the food for the soul that's available within the Baha'i scriptures. So this is what really impressed me, that I was looking at this enormous wealth of the spiritual words from God, which enables you to establish your own understanding of where your relationship to God is and your own beliefs. I think that's really where I, well, for me, it, was, it would have been impossible to deny the truth. The moment those words sort of touched my heart, then I knew that I was home, and I'd found a place which I could build my life and shape my life on it, although, in a sense, I wasn't looking for anything at that time. You know, I'd, I'd looked into other religions. You know, I'd gone to hear Humphrey speak on Buddhism and other people, and I decided that Islam really had become too institutionalized into, in a geographical sense, in the same way that Christianity was. And therefore, I didn't think either of those relig major religions or Buddhism really offered the solution to uh, the spiritual need of the world, and especially my own spiritual need. In a sense, that's why I became a Baha'i. To me, it was not that, oh, here are the social teachings of the Baha'i faith, because I always believed in you know, the equality of men and women. Baha'u'llah explained it much better that, you know, there's no gender of the soul, uh, which I never could understand why there should be, and that men and women physically are different, but their difference should not mean that you're 
can be misogynistic towards women if you're a man. So all of those things I already believed in. I already believed that Bahala says there's one human race, and he said that in the 19th century, and yet you know, he had people in places like Germany and, for that matter, England and, and the United States trying to prove that somehow or another one race was superior or inferior to another, and that never, never washed with me. It always seemed to me completely irrational. So when Bahala said one human race, which now, of course, scientifically has been proved, I, I already believe that. I, to me, it was, it was not those teachings. It was truly the, the spiritual impact of the Word of God, which I believe comes from Bahala, which is why I became a Baha'i. Now, you had mentioned briefly both the Bab and Baha'u'llah in the same context. Yeah. Could you just briefly describe the relationship of this man, the Bab, in the relationship well, to the actually, It's actually very, from a, I suppose I did manage to become some sort of a historian. It's like I became a religious historian. It's interesting that the, the Baha'i faith, as, as far as we are aware, because in terms of humanity's past, we really don't, we don't really know the genesis of many of the old religions, the ones that have faded away that we sort of study, you know, like the Hittites or the Egyptians or, the, you know, the Mayans. We, we're not really sure what the, truly what their beliefs were. Uh, we have some inkling, but not, not all that much. So for the first time, we're able to see with the Baha'i faith how a religion begins. Now, in the 19th century, it was actually 1844, there was this young man who was 25 years of age, and he came from Persia, and he was in the southern part of Persia, and he was a merchant. And he revealed to another person, because you can't start religion until someone believes in it, and he commenced, we believe, this religion. So we believe that the Baha'i faith has twin founders. Baha'is often use the word manifestation of God, which is actually quite confusing to a person who hasn't heard of the Baha'i faith, the founders of a religion, for those who believe in that religion, takes on, rightly so, qualities beyond imagination. In other words, when you sit in your upper room or wherever and you say your prayers, then that link that you have, for example, if you are a Christian, to Jesus Christ is extraordinarily special to the person. If you're a a Buddhist, it's to the Buddha. If you are a Muslim, it's to Muhammad. And so for a Baha'i, that personage, we believe, are rare human beings who walk upon this planet. They have a different, from a better word, a different type of soul to ordinary human beings. And they reveal the purpose of God to man. So when Baha'is use the word manifestation of God, that's what they mean. Some people, when they have taught a comparative religion, have used the phraseology higher prophets, which I think sometimes people who have a devout belief find offensive. For a Baha'i, if a person says, well, how do you see the Bab and Baha'u'llah? We see the Bab and Baha'u'llah in the same way that a person who is a Christian would see Jesus Christ. It's just that we don't preclude Jesus Christ from our understanding of where the prophets come. So the Bab is in that classification. So the Bab in 1844, and we actually know the date and the time, two hours, 11 minutes after sunset, May 22nd, he declared his mission to this young man who had been on a spiritual quest, a man called Hussein. It was also a mullah. From that moment in time, 
I took this young man, Hussein, about an hour to accept the Bob's claim. And the Bob wrote the first chapter of one of his major works that night. And uh, Mullah Hussain said that, you know, when he left the, the meeting with the barber the following morning, the barber wouldn't let him leave. He was, the man was trembling so much. He said he seemed like the voice of Gabriel personified, calling all, out to all mankind the fact that the promised one had come. That's, that was the impact. And to, just to interject, I'm sorry, Derek, but sure. of course Gabriel has a significance in the Islamic religion being the voice of Mohammed. That's right. And so this was significant for him to make that analogy to the Bible. Absolutely. Therefore, he was saying that this was a continuation of Islam. Mm-hmm. Or if you're a Christian, you would believe that the archangel was... So in other words, what, what Hussein saw was that the Bible was fulfilling all those prophets, primarily towards Shia, Shia Islam, but, it, but in particular Islam in general and also some others. The Bob's ministry was was actually very short. It was very similar in many respects to Jesus Christ. His ministry lasted six years, and he was martyred in 1850. And I won't go into the circumstances of all that because it will take us too long. But during that time, it galvanized Persia. I mean, Lord Curzon, in one of his books he wrote, writing of the impact of the Bob's religion, they were known as Barbies, actually said that something like a million people either believed or sympathized with the mission of the Bob at that time. And that was in a population of about 12 million. So as you can imagine, this had a major impact in that country, which was why the religious authorities there and the political authorities really wanted to crush it. After the martyrdom of the Bob, when he was executed in Tabriz in northern Iran, then in 1852, what simply can be described as a holocaust, they went out to exterminate Barbies throughout Iran. To all intents and purposes, by 1852, you could find no trace of the Bob's religion to obvious eyes. At that point in time, Baha'u'llah, who was known as Mazu Hussein Ali, he was the son of a nobleman. He'd actually embraced the religion of the Bob in 1844, in the, in the August of that year. He was thrown into a prison in the August of 1852. That's known as the Black Pit, the Seachal in Tehran. And this was a subterranean dungeon. And the basic concept was he was there with other Barbies and that his life would be ended. And he had a vision, as he termed it, the Wondrous Maiden, in the, about the October while he was in the, in this dungeon. From that point in time, we believe as Baha'is that Baha'u'llah was, if you like, awakened to what his station was. And he was released, we might say, by divine providence. It was due to great efforts on the part of his younger sister and others. He was finally released and was sent into exile, and he chose to go to, to Baghdad. He had a choice to go to Russia or he could have gone to India, and he chose to go to Baghdad. And then he was in, basically under, you might say, political, almost house arrest for the rest of his life. And he was sent then in 1863 when he made a statement to a small group of followers 
And during that time, he revealed that he was the promised one the Bab had foretold. And so the Baha'i faith really began as the Baha'i faith then and embraced the Bab's revelation as part of it because really they were twins in that sense. And then Baha'u'llah went to uh, what we now call Istanbul. It was Constantinople then. He was there for about six months. And then he was came over into Europe, again under house arrest, into Adrianople. And then finally he was sent to uh, what was then Palestine, to Acre, and there passed away in 1892. And he revealed most of his major works in Acre, although he did reveal other works apart from the Hidden Words in Baghdad and then Continental and Adrianople. But most of his major works he actually uh, revealed in, uh, in Acre, and uh, he passed in 1892, as I said. That's now regarded as a place of pilgrimage for Baha'is at a place called Baji, which is just outside Acre. It's a very beautiful setting. So what happened after you became a Baha'i? Well, I think that the first thing I did was, funny enough, was Michael, who was there, and myself, and I think was one other person that I knew from growing up, and the three of us, along with another dear friend of mine who now lives in Atlanta, we sort of sat down and we thought about all the people that we knew and tried to find people we thought would be interested in this new message. And so that's what we did. We simply went around all the people that we knew and we shared with them, here was this message from God. Interestingly enough, in that first year, about 26 people became Young people, same age as ourselves, became Baha'is. That was really the commencement of a large... There was a small Baha'i community there, but that became the commencement of a larger Baha'i community in that part of England. But what I found interesting was my father thought it was a bit amusing that I'd sort of changed my religion. My mother, I think, was horrified. (laughs) I always remember that one day I was trying to explain to her about the Baha'i faith and she wasn't really very interested, and she was making dinner, I think. And there was a knock on the door, and she went to it, and it was Jehovah's Witnesses. She called me over, and she pushed me out the door and closed it behind me, and she said, I think two sets of crazy people should talk to each other, which I didn't think was very polite. And I apologized to the, this man who was standing there with his briefcase. He said, well, what religion are you then if your mother's so upset? And I said, I have a Baha'i, and he was completely confused. He said, I see, he said, I'm with the Watchtower. And I said, oh, you're a Jehovah Witness. And he said, yes. And so he said, well, do you believe in the Bible? And to be honest, at that time, I didn't really know. Because, you know, I'd just become a Baha'i. I think I'd be in a Baha'i a week. And so I said, yes, we believe in the spiritual truth of the Bible. It was interesting. He asked me questions. And he said, okay, what about Adam? I took a guess, and I said, well, Adam was a prophet of God, brought a message from God. And he looked at me, he said, well, what about Noah? And I said, well, Noah was a prophet, as I remember from the Quran, uh, was a prophet from God. And so everybody said, I just basically said, that was, and he looked at me, and he said, this is too confusing, and closed his briefcase and went away. And I sort of went back in the house and phoned one of the Baha'is, and I said, do we believe that Adam was a prophet of God? They said, yes, how did you know? And I said, I sort of guess. I think what had already happened was that my mind had been opened up to the fact that the possibilities 
of what religion are frequently are quite logical. So I think that that was part of it. Now, Derek, can you explain to the listeners why the Baha'is believe that Adam is a, a prophet of God, yet in the Bible it talks about Adam and Eve? And the Garden of Eden yeah, and all that. Yeah. Well, we believe that there are, religion comes in different cycles. By that I mean uh, it's about the education of the human race. In other words, religion is on two levels. One level is always the same, which is the individual's connection with God, uh, which is taking our soul, which has all the potentials of development within it, to become this wonderful being in the next life. And what you do to your soul in this life will show what stage of development when you pass over it's at. And that's the same whether it's 100 years ago, 10,000 years ago, 100,000 years ago, whenever humanity understood it was humanity. But then we believe that in terms of the human race, there is a development process that's going on. For example, in one of the tablets of Baha'u'llah, he said that the way that human beings communicated in the past before they had writing was different. He actually said that if there was time, he would have explained that. I don't know what that is. So therefore, we believe that religion comes and a certain amount of spiritual energy is given within that cycle. So what we believe that with the commencement of Adam, now it's interesting that in the traditions in Arabia, they actually have a different understanding of Adam. They believe that Adam was the first prophet, higher prophet, who came and brought the idea that you would have an organized place to worship. And they believe that the Kaaba in uh, in Mecca was was the starting point of that. It would explain why there was a change of religious type, because when we look at indigenous peoples, they have one way of understanding religion and how to interact. And then suddenly there was a change in humanity about 7,000 years ago in terms of the way humanity started to worship and to do things. So we believe that that cycle, in terms of giving us a different way to have organization and religion, and we believe that Adam started that process. And we believe that the spirit that drove the what's termed the Adamic cycle was the Holy Spirit. And that, therefore, was within all of those great beings uh, that came in that time period. The ones we would know of would be like Zarathustra, Krishna, Rama, whoever the ones who founded the Chinese culture were, obviously Muhammad, Jesus Christ, Moses, Abraham, and so on. Um, When that comes to an end, when that cycle ends, which is we believe it did, then we believe that the Baha'i cycle started. So the Adamic cycle probably lasted for something like 8,000 years. Now we believe the next development cycle spiritually for the human race is the Baha'i cycle. And we believe that is for half a million years. And that the spirit that drives that cycle is the most great spirit. And to give you an idea, we believe that the strength, the difference, is like, want a better word, like 27 times greater. So in other words, the, the force that will drive humanity over the next half a million years to whatever end, we don't know, because within that time period, there will come revealers of greater truth for mankind in terms of our spiritual development. And we believe that prior to the Edemic cycle, there was other cycles which were going on. So we believe that this cycle will last for half a million years, 
and this will enable humanity to truly create, the earth will become of God, it will become the kingdom of God on earth. And therefore human beings will be reacting so much, in a, such a different manner to what they have now. Much of what is termed the animal side of human beings as we, as we sort of elevate ourselves and become more aware of our, that we are spiritual beings will change and therefore it will be things that human beings do today will be inconceivable maybe in in a hundred thousand years Uh, but for me when i first read that this idea that the world was going to end and that we were all going to disappear in a cloud of smoke or that all the terrible things could happen suddenly there was this was a planet with a future and i think what the great relief that baha'u'llah's brought for human beings is that our children and their children and their children and their children will be on this planet, and we should take care of it. And we should look after each other because we are all going to be here. We believe as Baha'is who will be following the teachings of God, and the platform for that will be the Baha'i faith. As Baha'is, we don't believe in any enforcement towards that. It, to me, it's, it's a logical thing that there should be a platform of belief and that this platform of belief takes humanity to another level of understanding. Mm. And, and, and to give you an idea, I mean, the explosion of information in the world, like many people, I have a laptop computer. My laptop computer that I now have, which is a very nice one, is more powerful than the computer that I helped, because I used to be in the textile industry in England. Uh, we installed a computer that cost a great deal of money, that occupied a very large room. They built a special building for it. The amount of information it, it worked with, the computer I have could do that while I'm doing other things. In other words, the computer I have, this is in a 30-year period, has moved on so much that we can start, we're starting to marshal the information which is available. I don't think yet we have learned how to control the data, but obviously we'll find a way of doing that. And I think what's shown is that human beings, just from a mental point of view, the brain aspect, uh, have been able to start to handle that sort of information flow. And I think, you know, if you see how our children operate and their children, how they operate with computers and things, how they handle the information... I think that indicates that human beings are capable, if it's just there on the mental level, of enormous things. But I think the greatest capacity of a human being is on the spiritual side. And I think what the revelation of Baha'u'llah does, it gives us the opportunity to tap into this enormous potential that human beings have. And I think that that's the flowering of the human race is what we'll really see. We'll see an explosion, I believe, in the arts and all the music and all the other things in science, but I really believe the greatest explosion will be a sudden realization that we are spiritual beings and find out what that means, but I don't think we know yet. So let's continue with your story. After your encounter with the Jehovah's Witness... Well, then I realized I should really learn more, mm-hmm. and so I guess I was blessed with a I read very quickly and stuff. So I then just immerse myself in the various things that were available, and we have a lot more available now than we did then in 1963. But whatever was available, I read and read and read. 
And also, that also encouraged me to explore other religions as well. I, I, but one thing that was interesting for me as a Baha'i wasn't that I should just learn about my religion, but also I should gain an understanding of what other people believed in. So, you know, I embarked at that time, interestingly enough, on a, what's been a lifelong study of Islam. I think in my library I have over 700 books on Islam. My wife sometimes asks me, am I thinking of changing my religion and becoming Muslim? <laughs> I have a large collection on Buddhism. and I, To me, it's always been interesting that when you meet people who are engaged in their religion, and by that I, I don't mean somebody who's fanatical, but somebody who is a true scholar of their religion, you know, how rich that encounter can be. So that's been one of the things that I found of great interest, the fact that the more I studied my religion and other people's religion, then perhaps the less I realized I knew. That sort of wealth that's there, that's really been one of the great joys of my life, to be able to study other religions and actually learn you know, from people. There's a, a man over in uh, Northern California called Matthew Fox who got excommunicated from the Roman Catholic Church. He was a, a priest and the current pope actually excommunicated him when he was the enforcer or uh, whatever they call the inquisitor. And Matthew Fox is an interesting man if you, when you meet him because he wanted to explore the divine. He's a great follower of Thomas Aquinas. And he found in Thomas Aquinas an understanding of Catholicism which had been lost, which today is not accepted. But when you think that someone like Thomas Aquinas was saying things like, the body is in the soul, which is a wonderful concept because the reason they used to burn heretics was the idea, well, the soul is the body, and therefore if you burn the body, the soul's gone. You've truly extinguished the person. But that understanding, I actually think, is, is true. I mean, the idea that your soul... You, your body sits inside your soul and its surroundings, I find illuminating. That means that people can meet and their souls are touching in ways that we cannot understand. And if there is recognition when you go to the next world where we don't have physical attributes, then maybe the reason people can recognize each other is because in this life their souls were already doing that. Now, I'm not saying that's Baha'i belief, but I'm saying it's an interesting concept and when you think that came out of the Middle Ages, it shows how much Christianity perhaps lost. People often say to me, you know, when they lose somebody who passes over to this life, which is always, no matter what anybody says, it's a tragedy because there's this person you loved who is no longer with you, their physical presence, and you're at a loss, especially if it's a, a married couple, and they want to know. It's interesting that in Islam, if the sixth imam was asked a question, why do we pray for the departed? And I'm sort of paraphrasing what he says. And the answer, which to me is, is a true understanding of religion, he said that when you pass from this life to the next life, you change from physical to spiritual. So in order to allow you to become accustomed to that new state, you find yourself in an antechamber that's darkened so you can adjust. And while you're sitting there, 
they come to you and they bring you a tray of shining lights. And you always ask the same question. What is this tray of shining lights? And the answer comes, these are the prayers of those who love you, who you left behind to light and guide you on your way. These are some of the lessons that I picked up, never mind the lessons from my own religion, from other, other religious uh, customs and traditions. Mm-hmm. That's been a great blessing for me. Now, you live in the United States. Yes, I do. So maybe you could talk about how you came from the U.K. to the United States, the situation here. I should perhaps mention that I got married in the the U.K., Mm -hmm. not to the girl that was extremely rude to me (laughs) at that party, (laughs) who is is actually a very sweet woman. Did she ever explain to you why she was like that? She didn't know why. She actually cut her afterwards, and I said, you know, you're very nice. Why were you so mean to me? She said, I don't know. I, I was having a bad, uh, you know, like a bad hair day or something. Like that. So she's actually very sweet, and we became great friends. But it was always quite funny. I met my wife, Seema. She was Persian. What was interesting is that she wasn't a Baha'i when I met her. She was actually... Uh, came from a Zoroastrian background, and funny enough, I think I mentioned when I was about 17, I came across the Zoroastrians in Manchester. I thought it was a great religion, good thoughts, good words, and good deeds, and I wanted to join, and they said, no, you have to be born a Zoroastrian, you can't join it, and so I think I made the classic remark of a, of a 17-year-old, well, I guess you'll be going out of ex- going into extinction. <laughs> going out of business. <laughs> yeah. So, which I don't think went down very big when I said that. When we first met, uh, Seema wasn't a Baha'i, but then she became a Baha'i without any impact from me. Her mother had been a Baha'i, but her father was a Zoroastrian. And we got married. What was interesting about that for me, although at the time I didn't really consider it, of course she, from an English point of view, I had married not just a foreigner, but also somebody from the Middle East. And that was a really a major challenge, and probably from a business point of view, that meant that there would be a, a ceiling in terms of how far I could progress in, in big business because the prejudices which are there. But, of course, as a Baha'i, it didn't really matter to me because the Baha'i community was so different. Seema and I, you know, we, we met in Cambridge. You know, I'd gone back down there. I worked for an electronics company, and then I went to work for a textile company, after Seema and I got married, and I was in the textile industry. And then we, we started our own business, and we had our own company, because I decided the way to sort of cope with that sort of prejudice was to simply have my own business to do it. There was lots of economic turmoil in the U.K., and we decided we would actually move. And there's a thing in the Baha'i faith called pioneering, when you, you move somewhere else to help uh, other people to become acquainted with the Baha'i faith. And so we actually pioneered to Mexico. We moved to Mexico. And we were there for over two years. It was really delightful down in the central part of Mexico. But we really couldn't manage to stay there any longer than that. I had organized a special visa so we could move to the States if necessary. And we debated whether we should go back to the U.K. or the States. Because our girls, we have two daughters, have been in an American school in Caletero, we decided from, from their educational point of view, 
it was better if we moved up into the United States. And so we moved into Northern California, and that was in 1983. We've been in the States ever since then, and we love it here. We left Northern California uh, in 2001, and we moved to Wyoming, and we've been in Wyoming ever since. We lived in a small place in England uh, after we got our second place that we moved to was a place called Oakham in Rutland. Rutland at that time was the smallest county, that's like a state in America, in the UK. It then got absorbed into Leicestershire, and I understand recently that Rutland has re-emerged again as the smallest county. So anyway, we were there in Rutland, and a lot of young people, by young, I mean up to the age of 30, became Baha'is. There was this one man who became a Baha'i. And, and so I mentioned this, the, the lesson how the Word of God can change your life. And I hope perhaps it changed my life in a similar manner. Um, this man becomes a Baha'i. He was functionally illiterate. And he always kept telling me that Baha'u'llah's teachings were like, and I could never, never understand what he said. He, he sounded like some Eastern seer. He kept saying Rama Tarata or something. He, he never brought me any books on this individual. He was a shoe repairer. He was a cobbler. So he would come to our meetings, and he would come straight from work. And he had work boots on, and because he was working with his hands, he was not exactly uh, in the best of condition, as you might say. In fact, the, the girls would, because there was three of us, there was Seema plus two other young pioneers were there, they would put a, a piece of paper under him if he was going to sit on one of the chairs. He decided he wants to become a pioneer. He carried on. He was a true pain in the neck, as far as I was concerned. But he said he believed in Baha'u'llah, and who am I to doubt someone's belief? And he kept asking me, we have obligatory prayers in the Baha'i Faith. There are laws and things that you should follow. But he asked me about the prayers, and I, would, I taught him how to say the prayers. Yes, you have to do these every day, Tony. There's three of them. You choose one of them, whichever one you want to do. And this sort of went on. So it was a, an ongoing battle, as you can imagine. And after about a year, we had a big musical event in the town. About a thousand people came to it. All of a sudden I got told that this lady, old lady, wants to meet myself and Seema and Rita and Helen. These are the four people that she wants to meet. And so we were very busy but being polite we went to see what it was. And this very nice dignified lady in sort of tweeds, wearing gloves, you know, very English. And I don't know the woman from, who's there from Adam and I said, Yes, can I help you? And she said, I'm Mrs. Cragg. I'm Tony's mother. And my first reaction was to say, it's not your fault. to <laughs> apologize, because this guy was a real mess. She then starts to tell us things about Tony which brought up a whole new side to us that we were not aware of. She said, you know that Tony has a brother. And I have to admit, I, you know, it flashed in my mind, yes, I wish his brother was a Baha'i because his brother was a chartered accountant, very respectable and a lovely person, if you like. And she said, well, Mr. Craig, referring to her late husband, Mr. Craig and I always used to say we only had one son, and that was Tony's brother because Tony was such a problem. And, and I said, oh, I thought, you know, I'm thinking, well, I could understand that. She said, but since he's become a Baha'i, she started listing all the things that he was doing for her now, that he was being a real son, and she, and she went on, and, and how kind he was to her, that he really was now caring for his mother. And she said, I asked him why, and he said, because this was the teachings 
of the Baha'i faith, and he was sorry for his previous behavior towards her. And I said, well, I'm so glad that Tony has embraced the Baha'i faith. She said, well, I want to become a Baha'i too. If you, this could change my son in this way, then I want to become a Baha'i. And she became a Baha'i. She was actually the first person in Rutland to pass on to the next life. But the interesting end of the story is that dear friends of ours who were living there at the time, the Wongs, Vera, they used to run the Baha'i Publishing Trust in the UK. Vera passed on, and Seema and I were back in England for a visit. I was there for a lecture tour, and we went to the funeral and the memorial service for, for Vera. We're standing there by the graveside, and there's a prayer for the departed that is said by Baha'is. And at Vera's request, she had asked that her favorite person, other than her husband, would read her favorite prayer at the graveside. She knew she was passing. She was desperately ill for a long time. And so this voice boomed out, this prayer that Vera loved so much. And at the end of the prayer, this was the end of that part of the service, this lady turned to me and she said, isn't it wonderful to hear the words of God said by such a spiritual, educated man? And that was Tony Craig. Oh, my gosh. And this was like 25 years later... And I think that is the, transform, the transformative aspect of the Word of God if it's allowed to enter into the hearts of people. And for me, Tony was a living example of that. So we only have a few minutes left, Derek. You sure. mentioned something about doing a lecture. Do you lecture on religion, on Islam, or what is it that you... When you well, I, I did serve for a number of years as a sort of scholar-in-residence. The Baha'i Faith has three permanent, well-termed schools. They're like retreats. And uh, I was scholar-in-residence of one of them on the West Coast in the Santa Cruz Mountains, a place called the Bosch Baha'i School. And there I would lecture on, on the Baha'i Faith and other religions, primarily on Islam with other religions. And I have spoken at universities. There is no clergy in the Baha'i Faith. That are actually quite difficult for people because that means there's nobody that can say to you, uh, well, you know, whatever you did bad, your sins are now forgiven. You basically, your relationship is a direct relationship with God. You have to pray to God for the situation. It's a bit like we have obligatory prayers, so you should do your obligatory prayers every day. But nobody calls you up at one minute past midnight and says, you know, did you do your prayers today? Oh, you don't have to check in online and say, you know, I'm, I was a good boy or girl and I did my prayers. So you really are responsible for your own development. The evolution that the Baha'i Faith is going through at the moment is that we've created a course concept, which is currently is in seven different books, where you enter into a learning process so that you can become the master of your own learning. So the, the first book, and they, they call Rui because it comes out of an institute in Colombia called the Rui Institute. And the first book really allows people to become attached or understanding the fact that they're a spiritual being. And it's actually deceptively simple, but it's actually quite profound. So it allows a person at their level to come to grasp what the Baha'i faith is about if you're a Baha'i, or for anybody to grasp that they are a spiritual being. And so we, we, this is a, 
a development process that the biofaith is going through. And the marvelous thing about it is everybody can do it that wants to do it. So you don't have to have a PhD or you don't have to have letters behind your name. The, the, the most profound spiritual being can gain from it and the simplest soul can gain from it. And, and to me, this is a, a wonderful thing that that process is actually on. You know, Bahá'u'lláh says that his words is the ocean of his words. And therefore, you can launch the boat of your soul onto that ocean. And with the sails up, the winds of God will take you to your destiny. And, and I think that is what part of the learning process that human beings have to go through, that we are not dependent upon the statements of others so that we can believe. And that goes back to the second of the hidden words when it says, see with your I'm paraphrasing, see with your own eyes, not through the eyes of others. It's a marvelous process that the Baha'i faith is now embarked upon, and everybody is welcome to join in. You don't have to be a Baha'i to go to any of those classes. Being a Baha'i is really being a believer in God and believing that every human being has a spiritual side. And I think this course enables people to understand that they can affiliate themselves with the Baha'i faith with not necessarily being a member of it. Derek, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure, and I hope your listeners enjoy it as much as I did. And okay. Thank you so much for asking me on your program. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Derek Koshat, a Baha'i now living in the U.S. who learned and heard about the Baha'i faith when he was living in England. For a copy of this and other programs, you can go to the website www.abahaiperspective.com. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org, or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective. This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.